0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church This teaching is from the series Jesus the King who came to die a study of the Gospel of Mark This dynamic fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah God's Son the King who came to suffer and die to save his people We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today We're going to be jumping back into our series in Mark and we'll be looking at Mark chapter 7 verses 1 to 13. The verses as always will be up here on the screen and they're in the booklet and if you didn't grab one of the booklets if you're a visitor and you didn't see one when you came in you can grab one out front. It has not only today's text but a series of questions to help you meditate a little more deeply on what we're talking about in this passage Um, and you can follow along in your Bibles as always. So Mark chapter 7 Verses 1 to 13, hear now the word of the living God. The Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. When we first read this Bible story, and you look at the first couple of verses, and they're talking about these ceremonial washing of hands, and whether you can do it before you eat, the first thing that might pop into your head if, if we don't get religious is, what in the world does this have to do with my life in the 21st century? I mean, this, this is why the Bible can seem so irrelevant and so pushed into the background. Jesus and the Pharisees, and they're arguing about whether you do ritual washings of hands. I mean, I'm okay if we want to talk about cleanliness, but that's not even what this is. This is some kind of a, a, a religious rite. Does that really have anything to do with life today, or doesn't it show that the Bible is actually outdated? Far from being outdated, this passage in Mark 7, and it actually continues all the way to verse 23, is so relevant, we're going to take three weeks to unpack it. Because in it, we're going to see Jesus is driving home to the real issues in life. Number one, what is the source of moral authority? Where do we really learn right from wrong? Where do we really learn what God expects of us and how we flourish as human beings? Number two, what is the nature of the cleansing we actually need? What is is really going on with human beings? What does it mean to be cleansed from our sin? And number three, how does god 's law actually apply today when we read these things in the Old Testament? How do we know what is true for today and what's not true for today? How do we know what is what is uh, eternal and what was something that was for a period of time? and with the coming of Jesus Christ, he fulfills that and it no longer applies as it did in the Old covenant. How do we know these things because all of that is dealt with in these 23 verses in mark chapter 7 so far from being irrelevant i hope over the coming weeks to show us it is ultimately relevant for us uh, to understand and to walk in and apply in our lives today so let's go ahead and dive in and we're going to look at the first 13 verses today and this beginning of it is jesus the scribes and the pharisees round two we've already seen conflict between them, but what's happening here, if you notice in verses one, two, and five, the Pharisees, and we're told the teachers of the law, some older uh, versions call it the scribes, the, the people who dealt with the law, They've come from Jerusalem. They're from far away because they've been hearing about Jesus. His fame has been growing. And this is the second time that there's been conflict between them and Jesus. They're coming and they're not liking what they see, okay? And if you remember back in Mark chapter two and three, it's actually chapter two and all the way, chapter three uh, up up through verse six uh, mainly, but actually it even goes a little bit further than verse six, there's this argument uh, and conflicts between Jesus, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And we won't look at those again, but just as a reminder, back then, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus said about the forgiveness of sins. They didn't like the fact that he ate with sinners. They didn't like that he called a tax collector to be his disciple. They didn't like the way that he didn't observe their traditions regarding fasting. They didn't like that he allowed his disciples to rub heads of grain together on the Sabbath day. And they didn't like that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. In fact, they said that based on these things, yes, Jesus is doing miracles. Yes, he is driving out demons, but it's because he's filled with Satan. That's why he's doing all this. They couldn't be further off. They they said there is no way this guy is from God. And in all of that, Jesus kept directly going against what they were saying. And much of it revolved around this question of the tradition of the elders but jesus though he kept pointing them back to the scripture he didn't directly address the tradition well now today we're going to get into round two that they had to kind of go off and lick their wounds after losing against jesus in round one they were thoroughly beaten at every turn but they're back for more and there's another major conflict This conflict, however, is about the disciples who are eating without washing their hands. And again, and the NIV even points it out uh, there in one of the things that it is ceremonial washing that's going on. This is not talking about, you know, like in COVID where we all had the signs for how long we needed to wash our hands to clean the germs. That's not what's going on here. This is about a ceremonial washing that is going on for ritual cleansing. And so the question is, is this really that big a deal for these guys? With, I mean, Jesus has been raising people from the dead, healing lepers, doing all these mighty works, delivering people from demons. Do you really care if his disciples do this ritual washing or not? And the answer is yes, very much they care because they think that is central to how one would walk with God. And so For just a moment, I want us to understand, and Mark does this for us. Notice in verses three and four, Mark realizes that his readers might not understand all this. To a Jew in that day, they know immediately what the conflict is over. But for us, we don't understand it. And Mark actually is writing to Gentiles, and there's a lot of ways we see this in the gospel. And this is one of the times where he explains what every Jew knew, every Jew, it'd be like me explaining the 4th of July to somebody, you'd immediately know I'm talking to somebody who's not an American, because Americans get what the 4th of July is. Well, here, um, Mark has to explain it to us, because actually verses 2 to 5 are one long sentence in Greek. It just runs on and on and on. That's why the NIV takes verses three and four and puts a parenthesis there. You didn't have a parenthesis back in Greek. They didn't have such a thing. But they're saying, Mark kind of stopped and said, oh yeah, you guys might not understand about ceremonial washing, so let me explain what's going on here. Uh, It's letting those who are unfamiliar, Gentiles in Mark's day, and all of us now who don't observe this, understand what's going on. And so there are several key points to understand about the washing. Number one, notice it is a ceremonial washing, as it says there in verse three. This is not about germs. So even though it uses the term clean versus unclean, it's religiously, ritually clean versus unclean. It's not about, they didn't even know that germs existed back then, to be honest. they had, We, we didn't have microscopes. We hadn't quite done all of that or understood all that. This was a ritual ceremony. And notice they wash their hands. It literally says, where it says ceremonial washing, it's, it's, it literally says the washing of the fist because of the particular way they did it to, to, to do all of this. But notice they also wash their utensils and everything else. And it's when they come back from the market. Because what they're doing and what they're saying is, is when we went to the market, we had to get around those nasty people those people out there who they're not clean. And again, not, not that, they're, that they're dirty. They, they might be cleaner and more perfumed up than we are, but they're religiously unclean. They're Gentiles or they're those Jews who don't follow all of our rules. So merely being in the marketplace where I had to be around that scum, that filth, when I come back, I've got to wash myself of my sin, so that I can be pure again. And notice the last thing is, it's all based on the tradition of the elders, he says at the end of verse three. And what that means is, as we're going to see, it's not based on the scripture. The scripture didn't tell them to do that anywhere. This was an idea they developed over time. Now we're going to deal more with with the actual cleansing part next week. But before Jesus really gets to the cleansing, notice he takes a detour and says, no, 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 finally we're gonna have to deal with this. We've been arguing around this point, but now we're gonna deal with it. What is the real source of authority? What really tells us right and wrong? What is really binding on people And what is just rules that you're making up? That's what Jesus wants to deal with. So notice in verses five to eight, he's bringing out that there's basically two possible sources of authority. One is the traditions of the elders, the traditions of men. And the second one is the scripture. So if you notice in yellow, three times, he mentions the tradition of the elders, rules taught by men, the traditions of men. And three times in the blue, he mentions Isaiah prophesied, which is the scripture as it is written, which is Jesus' formula for quoting the scripture, and finally the commands of God. So each time Jesus is saying, look, here's where our real issue lies. What you have is the tradition of the elders. I'm talking about what God spoke through Isaiah the prophet. What you have is rules that are taught by men. I have the very scripture. What you have is the tradition of men. What I'm talking about is the very Command of God. And they're two separate things. And only one of them can be the final source of authority for us. Now, this is because what had developed in Judaism was what was known as the oral law. There was the written law, and then there was the oral law. It was also known as the tradition of the elders. And it is not given in Scripture. There's no command telling you to wash your hands when you come back from the marketplace. There's no verse in the Bible anywhere that says to do that. But some people said, well, Moses wrote down Scripture, but he also gave things orally, and those have been passed down across, at this point, almost 1,400 years, and we have those as well. That's actually in a thing called the Mishnah, which is part of this oral tradition that came down, claim that it went all the way back to Moses. But what Jesus is saying is but none of that's actually written down. The second thing about the oral law was what it was really meant to be was what they referred to as a fence around the law. And what they meant was, well, God told us you know, not to step all the way over here, but what we'll do is we'll put a line right here. So that if you don't go past this, you can't possibly go over here. And even if you accidentally step over a little bit, you'll still be safe from going over. So God set boundaries, but we've set other boundaries that are even you know, tighter in so that you won't accidentally break the law of God. And it's, what it was ultimately really trying to do in all of this is Well, when Moses wrote in 1400 BC, we were in a very different time and a very different situation than where we are today. And we have to, you know, people are wondering, well, how does the scripture apply to us today in this different time and situation? Well, you don't have to worry. We're going to tell you how it applies in everything. You're not going to have a question come up that we haven't already thought through and answered for you. Thank you. It's going to be added, and it's going to be out there for you. And their intent in this, please hear, was to help people obey the law of God. That was why they started with the development of this. We want to help people understand how they can do it. So, for example, when Moses was writing and the people were going into the promised land, Israel was going to be contained in its own land. There weren't going to be Gentiles in the marketplace, And everybody was going to be following the law of God. How do we stay ritually clean now that we got Gentiles everywhere? Well, we developed this ritual ceremony to remind us that we're supposed to be clean before God. And so these traditions of the elders or this oral law were extra biblical commands that eventually came to be binding on the people of God. Make no mistake, God may have said you can't go all the way over here when the oral law said you can't go here. It eventually became if you go past this, you are sinning. Even though God didn't actually say that, we've now added that in and it's just as binding. And ultimately what Jesus is saying is you think it's more binding than what God actually said. Because you can't have two ultimate authorities. There can only be one. And so this is what Jesus is dealing with. And he gives us two test cases here to say the oral law or the tradition of the elders versus the scripture. Number one is notice in verse 5. Um, the, the Pharisees are coming in. It's specifically about cleansing from sin. And I'm going to deal with this a lot more next week, so we're not going to really look at it a lot today. But notice they're, they're talking about the tradition of the elders in doing the ceremonial cleansing. And you can see how the oral law developed in that the only people who were commanded to do ceremonial washings in the Old Testament by the actual command of God were priests who were about to go into the temple and do their service. But by the time the oral law was done with it, it wasn't just priests, it was everybody. It wasn't just the temple, it was anywhere in the entire land, and it wasn't when you were just doing worship, it was even when you came back from the marketplace. They had extended it in every possible way uh, to do it. And so it's going way beyond the scripture. And here's a clue for you. When we think we're going to be holier than God, we're in trouble. Okay? When God did not command, someone, when God says this is good enough, and we say, oh no, Lord, we're going to do more. Okay? You remember, Jesus gets on the Pharisees about this. The Lord told you about tithing, and he said, don't worry about the smallest little seeds, mint and dill and cumin. You're like, oh no, Lord, we're going to tithe even those. And Jesus says, that, that's a problem. Okay? It's a wrong problem heart and spirit. And that's exactly what's going on here. And what it ends up doing is it elevates the ceremonial law above the moral law which was the ceremonial law was always only meant to be a temporary pointer towards the moral law, what God is actually like. But this was saying, no, 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 the ceremonial law is actually even more important than the moral law. And again, we're going to look at this more next week and see how it undermines and it causes them to not even understand what cleansing really is. Our problem is not lack of ritual purification. Our problem is sin. And there, there's no amount of pouring water on my hands is going to resolve that. So that's the first one. But notice Jesus brings up another one, because he, he gets rolling here, and he deals with this, this idea of what is known as korban, which is a, a Hebrew and Aramaic word that, that deals with the things which are devoted, they are set aside, and it's devoted gifts versus honoring the parents. Now notice Jesus brings up here, and he quotes from the scripture, and he says, look, here's a command. You were told to honor your father and mother. Where's that found in the Old Testament? Does anybody remember? Ten Commandments. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, okay, it's in the Ten Commandments. Secondly, if you think through it, the Ten Commandments are broken into two parts. The first four commands deal with how we honor God. The second table, the the six, deal with our relationship with one another. And if you pay careful attention, they're kind of in a, a, a descending order. In other words, if you move down, there is you shall not murder, then you shall not commit adultery, then you shall not steal. What's worse, murdering or stealing? Okay, murder is on. So it's going down. But here's the funny thing. Where is honoring your parents? Before murder. Okay? So Jesus is saying, are are you paying attention? And then he quotes and says, did you notice as well in the law that it's only there But if you don't honor your parents, if you curse them, uh, what was the penalty that God assigned to that? Death. So Jesus is pointing out, how serious is this command? I mean, God's gone out of his way to say, this is essential. This This is very important. But you, you develop traditions that completely swipe that aside. Because what you've come up with against this foundational command of honoring and loving and caring for your parents, you've come up with this idea of korban, which is gifts that are devoted to God. Now, this is loosely based. What they would say is, well, that's based on the Bible too. It's based on Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, where it talked about oaths. What's interesting is, is in the oaths, if a young person made an oath, the parents could come in and nullify it, no harm, no foul. A husband could do, do it with a wife. So it's only loosely related on those, but what Jesus is trying to tell them is, do you understand, that's not nearly as central in the law as honoring your parents is. There's, there's nothing that says, if you do this, we're going to kill you, we're going to put you to death. But what you all have done is you flipped it on his head and said it's actually more important than honoring your parents. And the way Corban had come to work is, so I'm supposed to honor my parents. And my mom and dad right now, who thank the Lord to, and today, a shout out to them, it's their 67th anniversary, by the way. Um, but my parents are doing fine financially. So let's say I had taken my vast estate Including a now dead truck, a Hyundai, a little minivan. You know our last, But I said I'm going to give this to God when I die because that's the way Corban worked. I didn't give it today. I'm giving to God when I die. And then suddenly my parents say, "Son, we're destitute. We can't eat." And the response is, "Well, I would help you, but I promised it to God later on, so I can't use any of it now." That's the way Korban worked. And Jesus said, that is nonsensical. Obviously, you say at that point, the whole situation changed. I got to take some of this to help mom and dad out. I honor my parents because that is central in the law of God. And so what happened is in practice a child could avoid their responsibility to their parents by making a promise that wasn't going to take effect until years later after they were dead and just say sorry mom dad you're on your own. And Jesus is like you have turned the law of God. I said this is why Jesus says notice that you you aren't just twisting the scripture, you're nullifying it. What God actually said, you've just blotted out to do things he didn't actually say. And this is just one example. Notice in verse 13, he says, uh, you know, thus you nullify the word of God by the tradition you've handed down, and you do many things like that we could have this debate and it could roll and roll and roll because actually the oral tradition came to be much much bigger than the actual law of god itself and so this is why jesus as he often does has changed the topic you're wanting to talk about washing hands we got to get down to the real issue the real issue is we have two different sources of authority you have words that people wrote i have the living word of god And it's going to be one or the other of those. Now, I'm going to now jump over to applying the word for us. And I want us to think through this. What what does this mean for us? Because again, it's like, well, great, Brett. I, I won't demand that people wash their pots when they come back from the marketplace. But here's the reality. This is a real issue for all of us. Let's think through this together. There are several points we need to understand. Number one, all believers and churches have traditions. When I'm saying this, you could say, well, then we just won't have tradition. That is not possible. Okay? Everyone has traditions, it is impossible for any human or group to live without traditions. They're the way that we come to live our lives, the way we practice. So for believers in churches, we choose which language we use for worship. Now that may seem so, well, of course we use English here. What about people that are new into our country? So that becomes a big issue. Chinese immigrants coming in, how long do you keep using Chinese in your worship? Um, Which Bible translation do we use? Are there groups out there that mandate which translation you use? Oh, absolutely. They'll tell you absolutely, positively. I mean, I've been in lots of discussions, and no matter how much you explain that this stuff is not based on reality, no, this is more important than anything else. Um, What type of music do we prefer? Can, Can we use new songs? Do they have to be old hymns? What type of clothes do we tend to wear? Is it okay that I'm standing up here dressed like this? Do I have to wear a suit when I stand up? Is it dishonoring to God if I don't? Do I have to wear a collar and vestments? What is our format and liturgy of worship? Do we have men's and women's ministries? Do we not have them? How do we handle things with our children? Do we have Sunday schools or small groups or both? And let me point out, none of those are in the Bible. None of it. We're told to worship, but none of that is given directly in the Scripture. And you can't say we're not going to make a decision. You have to make a decision. Whatever you're doing is a decision on that. But here's the key thing. I have to remember what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible okay, what's actually commanded and how I'm trying to faithfully apply that command, which you and I might decide to do two different ways. And we might agree and do differently over time, but we're not thereby violating the word of God when we do that. So everyone has tradition. So the answer to this is not, well, I'll just stay away from tradition. No, we're we're going to have them. This church has traditions. We have no choice. Number two there are good traditions and bad traditions. Okay, so notice here, Jesus says, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. I memorized this verse when I was young, and I thought all traditions were bad. What I did memorize is the next two verses, which, and notice I've shifted to the NIV 2011 and the English Standard Version, because interestingly enough, And this might be a sign of the times. In the original 1984 NIV where I've memorized things, the same Greek word that is tradition in Mark 7, they didn't translate as tradition in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 2 Thessalonians 2. They translated it as teaching. And it's not the word that's usually teaching. It's the word that means tradition. But in the 1970s and 80s, when we were originally doing it, what did we tend to think about traditions? I mean, as a baby boomer, that's bad. If it didn't start with me, it can't be good. Right? Okay. Well, Paul said, I praise you for remembering me and everything and holding to the traditions I passed to you. Same word. Second Thessalonians 2. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Same word. Paul's not contradicting because he also mentions the bad traditions. Okay. But what I'm pointing out is there are good traditions and bad. The Pharisees were nullifying uh, the Scripture by their traditions. Paul is saying, in essence, you are strengthening your, your support of the Scripture by following the traditions. Paul passed them on and praised them for keeping them so that every tradition then we've got to sit down and say, well, how do I know what is good and what is bad? And the answer is it has to be evaluated and submitted to the word of God. That is the ultimate issue that is going on here. It means, and and that means that what may be a good tradition in 2023 we may reevaluate in 2043 and say, you know what? It served its purpose. It was helping us obey God. Now it's actually getting in the way of obeying God. There there was a time that maybe uh, an English translation was really, really good, but now it's become, you can't use this, anything but this English translation. It's now become a bad tradition. It's now actually gotten in the way of serving and walking with God. So, Third point, we all have traditions. It's it's, it's impossible to not have them. There are both good and bad traditions in the church. Third point is every single person in church is susceptible to embracing and enforcing bad traditions. It's not the Pharisees. It's not some other Christian group. It's you and me. We are susceptible to to enforcing bad traditions. The Jewish traditions of the elders started for good and noble reasons. And they were helpful for many people. But what happened over time is they took the place of the word of God. People didn't remember the actual scripture, but they sure knew the tradition of the elders. Because what they heard hammered home constantly was the non-biblical tradition that was originally meant to help you apply the actual Scripture. And so they had learned the extra-biblical commands and had forgotten the actual biblical commands. And less Christians think, oh, those Jews for doing that. Has the church fallen prey to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. The church of the Middle Ages in Europe had become so encrusted in traditions that obscured God's Word that the gospel was nearly lost. This was what, this was what the Reformation started over. This is why Luther went and banged the 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, was saying, we've lost uh, the gospel. Kind of Important okay, remembering the gospel. It was done. And the fight over extra-biblical traditions was a central issue in why God sent the Reformation. He had, to, he had to crack through those traditions. And again, many of them had started for good reasons. But over time, they get further and further and further away. And so people didn't even remember the actual Word of God. But is it just the church back then? So you don't... Know, American liberal churches are more committed to progressive political philosophies than to the actual explicit teaching of scripture. They will try to explain to you why what God has said directly doesn't really mean what it says there, okay? Unless we think it's not just those liberal Christians out there, American evangelicals today, the American evangelical church is often more committed to American cultural traditions than God's word and God's kingdom. There are many evangelicals that are more familiar with what our culture thinks about freedom than what the actual word of God says about freedom. There are evangelicals today that constantly confuse the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Let me say, love America. Went to the Naval Academy, went in the Marine Corps. I can chest bump on patriotism with anybody, but let me be really, really clear. America is not God's chosen people. You are God's chosen people. You are his beloved bride, and do not merge the two. But we are so prone to do that. Oh, that it were just the Pharisees. You and I are tempted to be modern Christian Pharisees. It's easy for all of us to fall into. I'll get excited and start preaching in a minute. So, (laughs) don't encourage me, Kelby. We'll all get in trouble. So, We need to, it's imperative that out of this, we have to learn to determine good and bad traditions. So please hear uh, these phrases here, okay? And you can look them up online later. They'll be in the notes. But good traditions clarify, support, uphold, and submit to the explicit teaching of Scripture. So good traditions clarify, support, uphold and submit to Scripture. They're helping me understand it and think through, but they are always submitted to the actual Scripture. Bad traditions come to a place where they obscure, undermine, contradict, or nullify the explicit teachings of Scripture. Okay, see, that's what happens. And again, over time, a good tradition can become a bad tradition. What was clarifying is actually now obscuring. What was supporting is now starting to contradict. What was before submitted to the authority of God's word is now in direct contradiction to it. And so we have to think through that. Good traditions consistently point people back to God's word. Bad traditions become more well known than the scripture itself. And when that happens, you're in trouble, in deep trouble. So um, one last thing, and we'll come to the Lord's table. And that is us trying to keep traditions healthy. We have them. We have them in our church, okay? For those who come to our church every week, when we end the meeting today, what are the last words you're going to hear me say? You are blessed. Go forth and be a... Blessing. Okay, now I'm getting that out of Genesis 12, okay? But please hear. You, you know, that's a tradition in our congregation. It's a good tradition. There may come a time where we say that's obscuring what God's wanting to do, okay? We, so, how do we keep them healthy? First thing, traditions are only healthy when they are firmly submitted to the Scripture. I, I don't have my paper Bible up here in front of me right now, but if I did, I would be holding up what is the word of God. It is what is written in the pages of Scripture. Nothing else is God's word. Please remember that, that is the ultimate authority. I remind us constantly. When I read Mark 7, 1 to 13, God is speaking. When I read from Psalm 95 earlier or Matthew 11 that we're gonna come back, God is speaking. We have to constantly remind ourselves that it is the principle of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the final authority. It is the word of God that feeds, the word of God that corrects, the word of God that commands, and the word of God that governs us as believers and as a local congregation. We are lost without the word of God. Please, always make sure you know the Word of God better than the Word of Brett. My my Word will not feed you. It will not rescue you. It will not save you. His Word will do all of those things. Be committed to the Word of God. So we have got to be rigorously careful to distinguish between what Scripture actually teaches and everything else. We are trying to, we have to ask ourselves, every week we end with applying the word. How do I take this and live it in 2023? But be rigorously careful to think through how I'm applying it and what the scripture actually commands. The scripture alone is infallible. And that is why scripture is central as we gather for worship. It should be central in our devotions. Again, like when you're in the midst of all of the haze, open God's word. Let God speak to you. And it has to be central in shaping our thoughts and practices. Second thing, traditions are a source of wisdom, strength, and vitality, while traditionalism ossifies our faith and saps our spiritual strength. There's a difference, okay? I'm putting up a quote here by Yaroslav Pelikan. Everybody here a big fan of Yaroslav Pelikan? (laughs) He's a church historian And I didn't realize until this week, I've used this quote before, but I didn't realize he gave this in U.S. News and World Report in an interview because he had just written the book on the importance of tradition. Good tradition. But here's his quote. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. That's That's a quote that's worth memorizing. I did years ago. And ask yourself, is this things that God's people have embraced and learned and walked together and it is living even today because it is helping me be before the face of God? Or is it something that might even be true, but it's a dead faith? That's the difference between tradition And traditionalism. And he continues tradition lives in conversation with the past while remembering where we are and when we are and that it is we who have to decide. Traditionalism supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time so that all is needed to solve any problem is to arrive at the supposedly unanimous testimony of this homogenized tradition. We've never done it that way before. Right? See, and here's the thing. Tradition is a helpful guide to understanding how God has worked among his people uh, and in our own times and lives and in the church in the past. Okay, it's, it's a good way of doing that. Understanding tradition can help us as we seek to faithfully serve Jesus in our time and place. Okay, we think through and say, they were in their time and place. They were wrestling through the scripture and they were trying to apply it. And Lord, I don't want to, you know, just ignore all of that. But how is that helping me here and now? But see, traditionalism comes in and says, you need not wrestle with anything. We'll just give you the rules. Just follow the rules. And when you do so, you're doing this. Closing your eyes, closing your ears, and try... See, that's what we want to do. (laughs) Traditionalism says you don't really need to walk with God. Just walk with the rules. You were not created to walk with the rules. You were made to walk with God face to face. That's what he wants. And good tradition helps me do that. Traditionalism insulates me from it. So we need to hear that we're constantly called back to a vital living relationship with Jesus, but you and I want to live on spiritual autopilot. You and I. If you don't think it's a temptation, I've got traditions memorized in Greek because that helps me just put her on autopilot. And Jesus is at war with me being on autopilot. He wants me to know him. Think about this with your closest friends. If you're married with your spouse, if you're a parent with your kids, who wants that relationship on autopilot? We don't want that. God doesn't want it from us. Traditionalism will short circuit our walk with Jesus and it keeps him encrusted in layers of history and attempts to fence in the Holy Spirit as he's seeking to work in and through us in fresh ways. Embracing tradition is healthy. Embracing traditionalism is deadly. But it's a temptation because we all, since Adam, like hiding in the bushes. It's scary, because if I start walking with Jesus, he might start poking, uncovering, checking my motives. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? Right? So I can just say, well, Lord, but see, I don't have time for that. I'm having a quiet time right now. Okay? Okay? I don't have time to actually have you speak to me. I'm going through my ritual. I don't have time to have you cleanse my heart. I'm washing my hands. See, we are so prone to that. So we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. And please hear and understand, this is a tradition. Okay? Actually, the same word is used, the same word that's used in tradition is used for this. It's something that is handed down, it's handed down from the Lord to us. But we, we do not come to this as traditionalism. The Lord wants to speak to you and meet you. And so I'm going to begin, or I'm going to end here today where we began this morning. As you are coming to the table, the Lord Jesus says this, come to me, all you Interestingly, in Matthew, that's Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, starting in the very next verse, the Pharisees are saying, but you're doing things on the Sabbath that aren't according to the tradition of the elders and you're not, you're not following all the rules. I found that so enlightening as I was praying and preparing the other day. Don't turn back to dead rules. Jesus is here and he's calling and he's saying, come. And whatever it is that has been weary and burdensome, if it's your sin, leave it behind. If it's religious rules and traditions, hear the living voice of the Holy Spirit. If it's that that you've been disappointed and hurt by someone, come to the one who will never leave you or forsake you whatever it is there's a hundred different things here the lord jesus wants to meet you right now as we come to the table and he wants to work and he wants you to experience his living presence if you are a believer you are welcome to this table you do not have to be a member of our church you have to recognize that your only hope of salvation is jesus christ you know Ryan shared earlier, you know, I'm not super spiritual. Here's the good news. None of us are. We're not. We're just all regular, everyday people. All of us. But he's a very good God. We are wandering sheep, but he's a really good shepherd. If you're a believer and you know your only hope is him, you are welcome to this table. If you're not a believer... This is a meal for believers. Let it pass. And then please talk to me right after the meeting because I'd like to share with you the good news of what it's like to meet your maker and walk with him. So we're going to uh, come to the Lord's table now. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to be passing out the elements now. They're gonna be going from the back. I remind you, there's two cups in each one. Grab it and pull it out as we do this, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What is being wearisome and burdensome for you? Let the Lord come. He wants to come and minister to that now. Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. In your life, you perfectly revealed the Father. In your death, your blood was shed to restore us to the Father. And in your resurrection, you ever live to intercede before us. Therefore, we come to you now, opening ourselves to hear and to receive from you. Brothers and sisters, take and drink the cup of life. Let's stand together and conclude. And as I pray, asking the Holy Spirit to come, I encourage you, please cry out to him and ask him whatever area the Lord has revealed to you to speak and to touch and to minister. Holy Spirit, you are the empowering presence of God in our midst. When we were dead, you raised us to life in Christ. When we have wandered from our Father, you draw us back to him time and again. And rather than endless rules and regulations, we need you. Holy Spirit, speak to us so that we might understand the word of God. Holy Spirit, guide us so that we might know how to live in a manner that pleases our covenant Lord. Holy Spirit, empower us so that we might be clean from the inside out. Hating sin. Loving righteousness. Serving God and man. Holy Spirit, come upon us and fill us anew now. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, the veil is removed so that we might behold Christ. And in seeing Him clearly, become more like Him with an ever-increasing glory, all of which comes from you, not from us. Holy Spirit, hear us, Oh our God, we ask all of this in the name of our gracious Father, of our gracious Father, in the name of your Son by the power of your Spirit. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, now I commit you to God and the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.